Welcome to Prophecy Roundtable. We don't have all the answers, but we're going to have a great conversation about the end times. I'm excited because we have Gary Wayne here to share with us his new book, Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. The exciting thing about the study of Scripture is the Lord kind of leads us to look at different things, and it's exciting when another scholar, another researcher is out there and he's digging deep and we come to the same conclusions on some matters, sometimes we come to different conclusions on the same topics. We're like, hmm, okay. But you know what? That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it exciting. And that's what makes for a great conversation. So without further ado, Gary, I am so glad that you could join us. Thank you for being here tonight. And I'm sure your book is going to do awesome. Where can people get Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2? Yeah, so book two is up for pre-orders right now. We've got a release date of March 12th. It's a very conservative release date. We're hoping to beat that date by a lot. And then we're hoping that uh, Amazon and the other places start to take inventory and start to sell it. And I'm also hoping Amazon releases the digital copy sooner than later because they already have that. So the best way to uh, get a hold of that book today for pre-orders, you can go through my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6Conspiracy.com. And on that website, I've got a generous excerpt of all 84 chapters. And you can pre-order from the website. You can't pre-order Kindle yet because that's not yet available. But you can, whether you're on in the U.S. or you're in Canada or you're overseas, I have a page for each just as I have a similar page for book one. And with the website, it also has a link over to amazon.com, amazon.ca, and also barnesandnoble.com if you want to pre-order with them. So you can get a signed copy from me. It's going to cost you a little bit more money, but you're going to get a signed copy and I have to ship it from Canada. Absolutely. No, I, I get it. Publishing a book is hard work. I've written on similar topics, Corrupting Image 1, 2, and 3, and I was looking through the table of contents. And I'm like, ooh, this looks really interesting because we obviously have some crossover, which is yeah. really, really cool. I just want to remind everybody out there, if you haven't read Corrupting Image 1, 2, or 3, check them out. They're on Amazon. They're on my website, douglasamp.com. And read Genesis Code, putting it all into a fiction, end times, action, exciting, apocalyptic kind of series is really exciting. So check that out as well. And keep us in prayer because we want to put this into put it on the, the big screen or the little screen as it were maybe a kind of a netflix series tech thing keep that in prayer well gary this you obviously been working on this book for a long time i'm really excited to start digging into some of the the nitty-gritty here you talk about giants demons and angels the days of noah and lot the giants of old nephilim giborim and Raphaim, demons devils and unclean spirits and many more exciting topics so Gee, where should we start? I guess that's kind of the big thing. And maybe let's start here. When you finished part one, did you not think that you were done? Or did you really think that you had a whole other volume that you needed to write? No, I thought I was done. I'm 300 okay. pages into another book. And I stopped that to do this book. And the reason why I didn't want to write another book was I didn't want to be redundant. Uh -huh. And yeah. I wanted to, I've got lots of other books I want to, get out all biblical and for the most part and about prophecy which is also part of my real sort of a passion and obsession but what changed my mind was 
with the shows that I do and the interaction that I have with the audience and people getting hold of me through my website, asking questions, asking for documents or on social media, doing the same thing. I learned that people were wanting to go deeper into the Bible, but also on a, how does that connect the dots throughout the Bible? And then that means prehistory to, to prophecy, which is one of the things that I, I think people need to understand to get the whole context of end time prophecies. It's all based in prehistory. So you kind of need mm. to know what those are. So mm. there is this thirst that they're not getting quenched in the churches where they're not really taught about prehistory and they're certainly not taught about prophecy. And as things, events have been heating up in the last few years, I think getting at a faster pace is that people are thinking maybe we're in the end times and maybe we're in the fig tree generation. And if we are, I want to get some more information on that. So what was tracking at the same time is I do as many or more shows on prophecy now that as I do on prehistory. I still like to do a mix, but it's about the thirst that was out there. So people said, we don't have enough information in a way that we can make sense of it. Is it possible to do that? And I thought, well, yeah, there's a bunch of research I didn't put into the first because I didn't want to go that deep. Hmm. And then there's other parts I wanted to expand on. And so I thought, I got pretty much know what I want to do. I just don't know how many chapters it's going to take to do it. <laughs> and you still can't get it all in. But you, <laughs> And so there's another one in the back of my yeah. mind. Maybe I'll do after the one that I've already started. So. <laughs> I feel your pain. I, I really do. When I finished Corrupting Image 1, I thought I had said everything I needed to say on the topic. And I was like, oh my, there's a ton more to say. And uh, yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'll probably end up doing four. That's the goal. <laughs> but well, okay. So something you talk about, th this is a uh, very... Um, I won't say dear to my heart, but it's something that I find very interesting. And it's on the topic of Halel. So just for our, our listeners, Halel is the Hebrew word in Isaiah 14, 12. How you fall from heaven, O Lucifer. That's the English translation that many King James and others have. Some say day star, morning star, depending on the translation that you're reading. But the, the underlying Hebrew word is Halel the Septuagint translated as Eosphoros. And so I would love to hear what you've discovered about this entity, kind of what your bottom line is. So go for it. Well, when I was doing the research for the first book, and I, in the first book I used the NIV because that's what I came back to Christ with. But after a while, you have to understand the King James Version, which was a struggle for me to do. So I needed to understand the Bible from a common language or my, my modern language before I could go back. And then I found using King James permitted to me to go deeper. But something struck me about the King James, which was really odd, was it was different than the Bible that I came back to Christ with. So I thought, well, that's really strange. And as I did the research for the first book, you quickly learn that Lucifer is the god of the Freemasons. <laughs> And another name for them, for Lucifer, is the great architect of the universe that is the same name of the god in Zoroastrianism and Mithraism, I'm sorry. And so I'm wondering, what the heck is an Italian word inserted into the English language for a Hebrew word, Hillel, doing in the King James Version Bible? It just makes no sense to me, and that it should probably be Satan, because if or translate it directly as hey as you would translate michael or gabriel 
or mm-hmm. angelic names instead of this maybe the meaning which they're trying to strive for they why not just translate it directly and so then it also struck me that this is obviously to me and i may be wrong and a lot of people might disagree with me especially when i bring it up is a lot of people think that lucifer is a nephilim mm-hmm. figure in that or a giant figure or another individual but they never went to heaven And then there's a whole bunch of passages, whether it's in Ezekiel with uh, the king of Tyre, it's the same thing. There's just passages that doesn't fit within that text. Yeah. And Hillel is a derivative, as you know, of Hillel. That is an allegory for the king of Babylon, but that doesn't show up in the Bible either. But the king of Babylon does in Isaiah 14. So I wanted to understand what was going on there. And What I kind of reasoned on it is you've got, it's like a a very special kind of prophecy that has information about prehistory, has information for a prophecy just after the time of the prophet or in the time of the prophet, and that it also has events that seem to fit Antichrist for the end time. Hmm. And so I started to look at that and saying, well, maybe they're talking about two figures and the king of Babylon is a little bit different. You also get the Assyrian that shows up as another allegory at the that's, end of Isaiah 14. So I was about how I got ask, into it. Yeah. I was about to ask you about the Assyrian. Nelson Walters put out a recent teaching on the Assyrian and, and the parallels between Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah, that this is an entity. It's discussing like a human king, but as it develops, it's not talking about a human as you were just pointing out. so Yeah, and I think it's uh, the anti-Antichrist figure again there that will be killed on the mountains of, of Israel. And just as the Assyrian is there in the book of Micah in the time of the second Exodus, and there's a lot of passages that you can connect that's more is fitting of the Antichrist in the Old Testament or the Assyrian than it is for whatever a, a generic Assyrian would be, which you would think would be the founder of the empire and maybe an Antichrist wannabe just as the beast empires seem to have always put up antichrist wannabes that were leading those empires. And, that, and, that, and that's what I was talking about as far as this, the beast, uh, the first beast. I believe actually the first beast might just be the, this Assyrian entity being referred to, as you just pointed out in Micah. The, the, yeah. what, what, most, what most would call the antichrist. Yeah, I, I certainly would put Assyria in there before Babylon. So as part of the seven. But then I would need to add in one other one, and you either would take that back to Babel, but then Assyria comes out of Nimrod anyway. So one of the things I connected together, which is seemingly likely, is all the beast empires have this interesting relationship with Israel and Judah. And so I think Egypt is more of a of the first beast empire, and Assyria would be the second one. And it's interesting that you have in Ezekiel 32, the, the passages about the terrible ones where Pharaoh was communicating with not only the mighty ones as, as the angels in the abyss, but also the terrible ones. And I think it's because he's communicating with like other antichrist-like figures, just as Pharaoh would be representative of an antichrist-type Pharaoh from the original Egypt beast empire. I think there's relationships there that help define what the beast empires are, which helps you as you get into the end time. I've got a question for both of y'all, because I guarantee y'all have done more research and deep digging into it than I have. But I have read, and it's been quite some time, that Egypt 
In other words, the Egypt and the power, the people that were ruling Egypt at the time that Joseph was in the land and Jacob and the other sons went there actually were conquered by Assyrians who then became the pharaohs of what would then oppress Israel. Have, have either one of y'all done much research into that as far as how there was an actual transfer of power? Yeah, so there's lots of versions on that, and they name the pharaoh a different name, but they're talking about that same period. Are you talking and about just, the Hyksos? Is that what you're referring to? Or No, I don't think so. That would be obviously later. In, in time this would be and from the this is from a polytheist perspective for the most part although you have a targum that refers to it and you have some ethiopian scripture that would also from biblically based would refer to that as well kind of almost like a targum like an editorial comment but lawrence Gard gardner uh, asserts that it was either the son of nimrod or um, his grandson that usurps the Hamites from the, the Pharaoh dynasty and puts that bloodline on that throne. And Nimrod by then had been intermarrying with the post-Diluvian giants and creating hybrids that would continue to work with the giants after the floods. I, I, I can't quite remember the name of the Pharaoh that we understand in secular history as Menes or the son of Menes or the son of Narma, but that's their accounting of it. That's how that bloodline from Mesopotamia transfers over to the pharaohs and starts the true pharaonic dynasty. And that would, again, it's been years since I even read that, but yeah. it was interesting, especially with this, this Assyrian being like the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece, a prince of Assyria. Yeah. Uh, this, like you just talked about this poly, in other words, not just a human, but a little, a lesser created God, one of those 70 yeah. Maybe that was put in put in charge of the nations type. Or or a demigod of one of those gods. You can okay, look at yeah, some like you can look at some of those passages both ways and it's <laughs> in as you're reading on that and some of the prehistory. So it's hard. But the demigods kind of classified themselves as a god anyways, right? They were just a lower level of God. So that's why it gets a little bit confusing. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, it, it's definitely challenging to look at the ancient mythologies and then try to connect the dots entirely with the Bible. You can kind of do it, but you can't do it on, with great precision. So it's certainly difficult. Okay, going about Lucifer, what's your kind of bottom line about, is that Satan, Halel, are these all the same entity? Yeah, I, think, they, okay. I think so. And I, okay. I was yeah. hoping we'd come back to that. Yeah. yeah. I would so, definitely and I, agree. And I think that the King of Tyre is actually Melkart. That's actually the same entity, yeah. in my opinion. Well, what's interesting about the King of Tyr in terms of, of the angelic-type figure, the cherubim, the anointed cherubim, he walks amongst the fiery stones like the seraphim mm. do. Mm -hmm. So again, that's why I look at Tyr as the King of Tyr, Tyrus, as being a similar type of character that's used in that prophecy. So again, you get a prophecy for the time of Ezekiel, you get a pro, uh, prehistorical information, and you get things that seem to be more applicable again for the end time Antichrist, who's going to emulate mm -hmm. Satan yeah. and, and go into heaven as Daniel 8.10 yeah. talks about. But for me, what and it's, I think it's important for to get this point out is that I look every everywhere possible to look at what Jesus said. Mm. 
yeah and 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 define it that way and so both in ezekiel and in isaiah you have this individual falling from heaven essentially yes. and yep. in luke 10 18 jesus identifies that i think as satan falling like lightning from heaven you saw yes. that so yes. I, yes I think that nails it that has to be satan and if the other details don't match up then it's got to be talking about a lesser figure and likely a demigod king as it's called, as king of Babylon in, in that prophecy. What's so amazing is that Helel, or I think it's Enlil. I'm not sure if you would agree with that, but I think Helel is Enlil. Enlil had a son. His son was Ninurta, which is the Mesopotamian version of Nimrod, yep. right? And then, of course, Genesis chapter 11 tells us, or 10, excuse me, tells us that Nimrod became, he began to be yep. a Gibor, a yep. gigas, a yeah. So, and, and it's interesting. We should look in the ancient iconography. You see that a lot of the same icons that were used for Helel or Enlil were actually used for Ninurta at the same time. So, there was clearly a kind of a hybrid relationship going on yeah. there. Yeah. Cool. And Gary, you just mentioned it about Daniel eight. I've all that that passage has always intrigued me. And back when yeah. I was. Back when I was solely a futurist, now I'm a preterist, historicist, futurist. I'm a cyclicist, if you will. In other words, that there, prophecy is a pattern. It's a repeating pattern. And so I can certainly see how Daniel 8 was fulfilled, but it will yet to be completely fulfilled. And I didn't ever see Alexander, any of these people necessarily going up to the host of heaven and kicking out other yeah. heavenly beings. Is that your understanding that this is an end times? None of the Antichrist wannabes made it to heaven. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And yeah. so, but Antichrist will, as it's prophesied in Daniel 8.10. So mm -hmm. he's actually going to throw down some of the starry host. And that's at the midpoint when he comes to power, which is the same time as the war in heaven with uh, Michael standing up to fight against Satan and, and his angels. And they throw all of the rebellious angels down to the earth so it seems to be about the same timing and of course antichrist is going to receive the power as false prophet does from satan and so one presumes they're working together and he's going to do for satan or try to do and at the same time to put his throne on there as well it's really kind of interesting hey and doug real quick all right are you too gary but this it, it's verse 11 even against the prince of those i i believe that's pr most likely michael when michael stands down and and god actually almost allows satan this authority here on earth yeah. it was thrown down but it says he he takes away the regular burnt offering away and, uh, from him yeah. and overthrew the place of his sexually even against the prince obviously that's not Yeshua. That couldn't be Jesus unless it's being allowed and permitted as part of the redemptive plan. But is it, what are y'all's understandings on who that Prince of Hosts is? Maybe Michael, that's the archangel for Israel? Well, I think there's a number of passages where you really have to look at them as closely in terms of what it's talking about. And the Prince of the, the Host, which is the angelic army, Saba, who's leading that army. It doesn't, it wouldn't say that you could put Jesus into that, but it's Michael that's fighting against the beast empires that I think prevents Antichrist from coming to power until the ordained time. And then it's Michael again fighting in Revelation 12. Mm -hmm. So I would be happy with either, but I would lean more towards maybe Michael there. 
Some people also think in the time of the Exodus with Joshua before the destruction of Jericho that some people think that's Michael. But I think when you look at that closer, that's definitely Jehovah. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with you. And I definitely think that the Prince of the Host is definitely Michael that's being spoken of there. And I would suggest that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the one that is restraining will do so until he's taken out of the way, that that's actually Michael. And the apostasia is the falling away from a, let's call it a covenant relationship with God, and they're going to enter into a covenant with death and Sheol per Isaiah 28. And because I think, I think this whole thing, I think we might agree here, Gary. I, I we do 100%. Whole, yeah. I think the whole battle is a legal battle. So Scott, that's in your yep. domain. It's a bunch of lawyers yep. fighting. I, I think that's really what this is. It's not who has the bigger tank or the yep. bigger guns, but who has the legal argument. I use that loosely, but the legal uh, precedence, if we will. That's to, what we call. Yeah. And I think this is where the world is going to give the antichrist the authority to say, yes, we yes. want you to be our king. Yep. So yeah, exactly. And I used to think early on and probably about 10 or 15 years ago, maybe more now, I started to think, was it really the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, which is the standard doctrine? And I get that. Mm-hmm. And I used to think that, yep. but I get so many more passages that would seem <laughs> to indicate that yeah. it is Michael oh. and well, Gary, not only is it not only is it the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit in me and you. And once we're removed, then evil can run amok. (laughs) And what's even crazy (laughs) is then then some of these people say, and the rapture could happen five, 10, 20 years before the beginning of the tribulation. I'm like, really? We're gonna have the world without the influence of the Holy Spirit here for five, 10, 20 years, and that won't be a tribulation unto itself. It doesn't make any sense. Spirit of Yah is omniscient, omnipresent. He, it, it, the spirit cannot be removed. And and we, we get passages, and I know people will try and reimagine it differently in terms of what Jesus said, but if you look at the parallel accounts in the book of Mark and Luke, they're talking about the wisdom and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghosts providing that spirit to testify and do the testimony for Jesus before the abomination. So the inference would be likely in the first three and a half years and maybe even before that, right? And so no matter what, the Holy Spirit is going to be there up to at least the midpoint of the last seven years. Now, you can also make that as a case, well, then that could be the restrainer, but not from a pre-trib perspective. But again, I think the passages line up better with Michael and just seems to fit. And it's Michael that's being talked about throughout the beast empires and in the end time. And again, he stands up in Daniel 12 at the midpoint of the last seven years. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of tell us what was the overriding thesis of book two versus book one? What were you trying to convey and help people understand that you didn't get in book in the first book? Yeah, I didn't do that much on prophecy in the first book. I did a, a one section in there and then talked about aspects of, things for the end time and the antichrist coming. So what I wanted to do with this book was is to walk people through uh, the Old and New Testament as it talked about giants, as it talked about the angelic orders, as it talked about demons, and connect 
the passages and other Old Testament prophecies that have meaning and context for the end time, but do it in a way in the first part of the book that you tell a larger story of the Old Testament, including all of the giant wars of the Exodus, both before and, and after, and to underline those key words and then use it in a way of applying a prophecy or prophecy in a chronological way where you get the context of prehistory, how it fits in the end time. And you also get a chronology in terms, and I lay out what my, how I approach prophecy in the preface for people. So at least they can understand how I got to where I got, whether they agree with me or not. And in that understanding as you, and as what was mentioned a little bit earlier on, there is this, it's all, it's a reoccurring thing as in nothing is new under the sun and what was will be again, but it's in a lighter version in terms of what the spurious forces are trying to bring about. Cause they would like to bring about the end time before the end time and have been mm -hmm. trying since the beginning mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they'll just have to be satisfied and wait till the ordinary time because they won't have any choice. And so that's why we see these things. So you get antichrist like figures, but Michael's there not to prevent the beast empire from rising but to prevent Antichrist from coming to power until the ordained time. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, a great, that's a great insight. Do you think Nimrod is going to be related to the end time beast? Well, he's uh, certainly connected uh, because he is the original archetypical Antichrist figure after the flood. Babel is the root word for Babylon as it shows up in the New Testament. And the Babylon religion coming from Babel would infer with extending that kind of thought that it would be the same original pantheon mystical religion that will be coming in the end time. And that we don't know what happens with Nimrod. So there's a theory that's out there that if he became Gibberim, a mighty one, did he change his nature somehow and somehow became more Nephilim or Raphaim-like? I know his father biblically is Cush, uh, but we don't know who the mother is. But typically, you're not going to see these individuals in the table of nations unless they are directly from Noah. And so that's why you have the father that shows up. And when we have like patriarchless nations like the nine Canaanite nations, hmm. those are likely Raphaim patriarchs. Mm -hmm. And in the new book, I'll trace that back to Raphaim names using patronymic titles, using patrial name places and things like that to come up in other sources that might even name that particular giant or a god that would have produced that giant. And Ugaritic texts are a great help in some of this and a whole yes. bunch of other sources. Yes. So I think if he, however he did it, became changed more than breaking the vows, more than <laughs> the rebellion. Like then as a lot of people speculate, maybe he's part of the one that comes up out of, out of the abyss. Hmm. I don't rule that out. That's not my most favorite ability, but what I do know is that's the first understanding of what we should prepare for the end time because we get that account. Yeah. Just as I think in World War II, we get a more closer analogy it's not a full world empire because it's not permitted to happen right but that is an antichrist archetype type figure trying to do the same things that antichrist is going to do well his very name is let's rebel that's yeah. what nimrod 
in yeah. the Sumerian and Akkadian versions, Ninurta is Lord of the Earth, right? Yeah. So he's both the rebel and he wants to be Lord of the Earth, right? That was his big idea. And then the word Rephaim has it's related to the word Rapha, which is yep. to heal. Yep. My theory on this is that they might have been called Rephaim is because in some way they were healed of their mortality. It wasn't a permanent healing in God's economy, yep. but it was at least a, a, ba- a pretty good band-aid for a while. Yeah. Well, and, what's interesting. You know, yeah. You know, what's interesting about that. And, and I know you, you know this as well is that RPM would probably be the Semitic root and in the Ugaritic text you have, as it's transliterated, Rapiu and Rapium from RPM, which is probably the root Semitic word for Rapha in, in, in 7495 versus 96 and 97, which are the spirits and uh, the giants, respectively, as I laid the numbers out. But what's interesting about the accounts of the Rapiu and the Rapium that are in the Ugaritic text, not only are they the dynastic kings, but they are also warriors, and there's also GBR that's in there for a root word for Gabor, it seems, for mm-hmm. almost as a race of giants versus just right. mighty ones that is in there. And they were healers, not only of themselves, yeah, but of others. Right. Did, did you pick up on the name of the god of the Amorites that his name was Martu, which yep. is the same exact root? Isn't that yeah. wild? You're like, uh, okay. I mean, there is clearly yeah. a connection there. And uh, yeah, studying the Ugaritic text is very interesting because they talk about there was a god named Og who yeah. was Og the king the of... One. Yeah, he was the terrible one. He His headquarters Eric. were in Ashtoreth and Dre, <laughs> yeah. also Hermon, right? It's like, how interesting, yeah, right? And and I, I cover a lot of that often in, in book two is how close the Semitic root words for the Ugarit we can take directly into the Hebrew Old Testament, and Mount Hermon is exactly one of those. Or the people look at the the accursed oath of the fallen angels that was sworn on Mount Hermon, according to the Book of Enoch, and that's yeah. Haram, right? And with an A or an E, doesn't really matter. They're both cursed and accursed, right. and that's the root word for Mount Hermon. Right. That has many different names, including Saphon in the Ugaritic text and Sirion and Sion. And there's one other one in the Old yeah. Testament for Mount Hermon as well. Yeah. Saphon is the word. Saphon is yeah. how you pronounce that. And that is the farthest reaches of the north. Yeah. Right. That is one of the epithets of Enlil in Isaiah chapter 14. Right. Yeah. So all of these things, you, you start yeah. seeing this in the ancient world. You're like, oh, yeah. we know who this yeah. dude is. Right, yeah. And for me, it was really enlightening because if you start looking for Lucifer or Satan in anywhere beside the Bible yeah. in the ancient world, you don't find him anywhere. Yeah. Right. But when you start looking for Enlil, you find him all over the place. Yeah. And, and he's equivalent really with him. he's equivalent with Baal in the Ugaritic text. That's right. Son of, That's son right. Of it means Lord. They all yeah. just mean the same thing, which yeah, is Lord crazy, God. You know? Right. Yeah. And why, again, you King James Version Bible, well, I don't like that Lord God in there because <laughs> the Masons kind of love that type of thing. Well, okay, but to be, to be <laughs> but to be oh, fair, the word, but the word Adonai is used in the Bible to refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Well, it well, it's, it's word, actually translates out. Of, I think just my Lord, as opposed to using Lord for Jehovah. 
No, that's not true. That's not true. 427 yeah. times for my Lord. Yeah, but you definitely have, <laughs> you have Adon. Which as is, Adon, yeah. 427 yeah, times as my Lord for Adon. Yeah, so Adon, yeah. Adonai, yeah. clearly referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And, and uh, yeah, and of course, I, I, Baal, I would, would have no, I wouldn't have a yeah, problem with that. Yeah. What I have a problem is overlaying that onto Jehovah. Well, I, I see in, your point. in the I, English, I know. yeah, I know because Baal, and I'll just finish the point. And again, it doesn't change my view of the Bible in any way. It's just that Masons, Baal is just as Osiris is a allegory for Satan as one of the offspring gods and they mm. just and they and i've had conversations where they, they love it that it's my lord in there because they say mm. they're it's actually talking about baal in the interpretive polytheist approach mm. wow i use actually six different english translations which is how i back my way into saying okay what does the original greek and hebrew say so again i think the king james version and for research i prefer the kgv uh, Bible because the, I like the now I like the language when I first started it just made my mind go to mush but the language <laughs> is closer to the ancient so you start to see some interesting connections there there are a couple of questions so this is from Mark question how did the giants survive the flood all right well there's a few theories on that we don't get a smoking gun verse after the flood like we do in Genesis 6 4 we have to be open. I have my own personal view that I look at second incursion or second creation of the giants as fitting the Bible a little better. Mm -hmm. And I can accept the idea of Nephilim surviving, except that seems to be from a biblical perspective, more of the Raphaim that are talked about in the New Testament, but uh, there are different kinds of giants. So um, a little bit open and you can make a legal case that somehow with angelic help whether it's in the earth off the earth on an ark whatever other way that in stasis whatever else and angels would have done to save them that they could show up after the flood and were helped to, to survive because you can make a legal argument that in genesis 6 and genesis 7 that it says that God was going to destroy everything he created. And technically, he did not create the giants. It was the angels and with human females that did that. So you could make that as a possibility of an argument for them surviving. Biblically, we're not told they survived. But biblically, we don't exactly have a smoking gun verse that says there was another second incursion, although I think it is. And I think it might be hinted at in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where it talks about when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and did so again, right? <laughs> Paraphrasing yeah. it. Well, and, yeah, and the what's text again? Is really interesting. That, yeah, yes. good. So I was just going to say that could mean there was more than a first creation. There was a second creation before the flood, and maybe right up till the time of the flood. Or it could also mean again after the flood. So there's a possibility for mm -hmm. either. I have a great document for people if they want to get a hold of me through the website. Just ask for second incursion. I'll give you the case for biblical second incursion, but I won't go 100% there because I just, I would like to have that smoking gun verse because it would just make it a little bit easier, but I think it fits better biblically. Now, the other way is what I call the third bucket, and that's my least favorite, but again, we don't have that smoking gun verse. So that's somehow on the ark uh, with Noah. Now with the Gnostics, they have, 
uh, Ham being a giant, they also have Ham, uh, Japheth, and uh, Shem, and all being giants. And that's one of the ways that they say how giants might show show up after the flood. Also, Gnostics have stowaways like Tubal Cain and or Og as a stowaway or hanging on the <laughs> the edge of the ship on the ropes and, and then being fed for 40 days, but hanging there, surviving. And then the there's the other theory that it could be from the wives that there was impure DNA or the DNA of the Nephilim that were part of the wives of the sons and or even of Noah, as some of them would extend that. And that's the DNA that you see show up in the Canaanites. I think there might be I don't think the DNA was corrupted, in my opinion, in, in how I understand it. I would think that you would have additional DNA, but for all four races, so that the wives would represent all four races. And I would think the wife of Noah came from the Sethian lineage. Uh, and then perhaps the other races were represented in the wives of the sons, which is how we show the four races showing up after the flood. I think it gets a bit complex now if you're going to mix in uh, the giant DNA into that fold. So again, I won't rule it out because a lot of people favor that. It's just my least favorite. So how I think they survived the flood is second incursion because they didn't survive the flood, but I'm not dogmatic against it. I think it's, I think it's right there in the text, in my opinion. It says there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, right? So those are giving you two different Yep. time spots and then yep. you have this modifying phrase when the sons of god came into the daughters of men so the there were giants on the earth when the sons of god came into the daughters of men and also afterward when the sons of god came into the daughters of men yeah so that so, that one phrase that predicate is really yep. defining both of those previous phrases yep and i think that's what makes the and, most sense because and, god said and, everything was yep. everything that had breath under heaven on the face of the earth was wiped out, right? So that's why I wholeheartedly re reject this whole idea that yep. uh, they hitched a ride I, on the boat or something like that. And we agree 100%, except I don't go quite that last inch. And in the document, I'll produce the Hebrew words and produce the meanings as to that it strongly suggests in like manner later uh, at a different time. Yeah, I think we're there. I just wish I had a better smoking gun verse than that <laughs> <laughs> it would just be easier because it gets really complex when you're into the nuances of the meanings of the hebrew yeah. uh, in in that application you have to make sure it's consistent that's one of the things i would encourage people to do is yeah. get to the original language but don't have a preconceived conclusion to pick the meaning that you want it has to fit the sentence it yeah. has to fit the narrative and it can't contradict yeah anything else in the bible so you have to use some discipline to do that absolutely yeah i th I think i actually think it stems from satan giving his dna to nimrod that's my theory on it and that's where we get the whole Rephaim and all that stuff and you get martu the god of the amorites god says that the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete and all this other stuff martu seems to be the same god as amaru yeah, Amuru and Martu yeah. are exactly, they're just two yes. different languages. Yeah. yeah. Amorite seems to be eponymously named or patriarchally named or both after the God and then a possibly right. a Raphaim. Yeah. No, Martu is a Sumerian, Amuru is the Akkadian, uh, but they're exactly the same God. Yeah. And we know that this is equivalent to Ninurta, who is Nimrod. Yeah. 
based on the ancient text. So Joel Blackford has a question. He says, Daniel 7, the beast, lion, bear, leopard, and beast all tame, which are unclean. Daniel 8, beast, ram, and shaggy goat all tahor, clean. Why? Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I don't. I hadn't really considered the type of animal. Typically, the type of beast, as I understand the allegory for the empires, is chosen to reflect the empire. I would think all of them would be unclean. I would think that you might make an argument that the bloodlines are less pure as you get into the older empires, but that doesn't make them pure human by by any stretch of the imagination. No, I don't really, I'll have to think about that. That's an interesting question. I haven't looked into why there would be a mix of clean and unclean. Have you, have you looked at that, Doug? No, I, I really haven't. I hadn't considered it. I Certainly the lion, I think, is very uh, a very good description of Babel because we see that in the ancient iconography where you have the Anzu bird that was a hybridized lion. Yeah. And it's very much the symbol for Enlil and for Nimrod. You know, I don't know. That's that's a good question. Certainly the leopard, Alexander the Great, was very fast. I think that's a great description of Alexander the Great. But then, yeah, I don't know. But of course, I also think that the ram is also, that's that seems to be Greece once again. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe just two different perspective is yeah cyclical yeah that's cyclical then we don't have to sit there and go this prophecy was fulfilled at that time it's because it's a cycle sure it's yep i'm with you i'm with you all right all right so all of this you've gone back you've done this deep dive into the ancient (laughs) world now bring us up to the future kind of what is your how do you see Armageddon coming down? What does this have to do with the ancient world? What's the connection? Yeah, like I'll reference Psalms 21 and Isaiah 25. And I think this is the branch of the terrible ones as in Isaiah 25 that talks about that's going to be destroyed on the mountain. And I also think that in Psalms 21, it talks about the time of the end in terms of the fiery angry anger and wrath when the seed of those evil ones are going to be removed from the seed of men. That's 21, 8 to 10, if people want to look that up. I can read the verse word for word if people want to hear it. Here, I'll just pull up that one. I have it handy here. So, thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. In verse 21, 11, for they intended evil against thee, they imagined a mischievous vice which they are not able to perform. So it's that destroy from the earth and their seed from among men. And then Isaiah 25, it's talking about the terrible ones, 25, 1 through 4. And then if you continue to about 8, it gets into the mountain. Yeah, uh, okay, yep, verse so... 8 is pretty cool. Your hand will find out all your enemies, your right hand we'll find out those who hate you and it's going to be Yeshua doing the, so it's Doug and I had a debate with a guy that wants to have uh, Yeshua being a lesser created sun God. That's the eternal barbecue. So when I see passages like that, it makes me, it gives me, it makes me feel better about my position, understanding yep. that Yeshua is yep. not a lesser created guy. 
Yeah, and then you've got that really interesting passage in Daniel 2.43 as well. That's talking about two different seeds again, and mm-hmm. that being the seed, one seed coming out of the uh, the metallic empires and then mixing with the seed of men. So there's there's a good case in the Bible, and particularly when you match that up with who the terrible ones are and the branch of the terrible ones. And who the terrible ones are in Ezekiel 32 and in, in Isaiah 14, when you start matching that up. And again, Arit is that terrible one term. And you have, as you were mentioning earlier, Ug, which is Og. I think we talked about that on the last show, O-W-G back to U-W-G and U-G, removing the almost silent consonant that's in there, Ug, the terrible one. And that was this city, right? And Bikuriath Ugarit. And or you could go Ugari team as Ug the or Og the terrible one, and he's the last of the Raphaim, and I think he moves there after the a war of giants in Genesis 14, and will rule over the Amorites from there as well with Sihon with a sister kind of empire there. I think he starts off in Ugarit and then moves after the Raphaim are wiped out in Genesis 14. And great. So you're suggesting that Ugarit is from the word Ug or Og. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, Ug and Arit. Arit has been, as the definition for terrible one, or as it's translated into English as terrible one. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. I I was just going to say, like, like, you brought up Isaiah 25 and verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time. Obviously, Paul's quoting that, I believe, or at least alluding to that in Romans. And, and as well as I think it's Hosea, oh, death, where's your sting? But it's, and, and I was just thinking about this. There's going to be people dying in the millennium. So is it possible that some of these passages would not be completely fulfilled until after at the end of the millennium when Satan is released and the final rebellion is put down? In other words, there was an initial rebellion put down in Genesis 6. Yeah. There's another rebellion put down at his at Yeshua's second coming, but the final rebellion, number three, which is a pretty significant biblical number, is not going to yeah. be put down until after the seventh day. What, how, what would be both of your opinions on that? Death will still occur in the millennium yeah. if we take the passages literally. Mm-hmm. Did you want to answer that first, Doug, or do you want no? Me go to- ahead. Oh. Well, I think I think we have two Gog Wars, and the one you're referencing is, is the one at the end of the millennium versus, I think, in the last seven years, just before the midpoint, and probably consistent with Joel 1 and 2 versus Joel 3, which is Armageddon, and so Joel 1 and 2, Gog War, and Revelation 9 matches up very well. And when I look at what happens in the millennium, is you're going to have survivors, not just Israel and Judah that survive in, but obviously by inference where you have Gog and Magog in that war, that's a reference of the Gentiles, right? And that you might even make a reference that there might even be bloodlines in there, but I'm not sure that bloodline makes it. But I think there's Gentiles that survive Armageddon and will help repopulate the earth. And Satan's only released for a short season. And I know a, a, a lot of preterists like to make that into hundreds and maybe even thousands of years, but we only get short season once elsewhere in the Bible, and that's in Revelation 6, where they're told to wait for a short season, which would be three and a half years for those saints to be killed in Revelation 7. And I don't think Satan needs 
hundreds of years to create a rebellion and raise an army, even at Armageddon, that's going to take within a year or less than a year. To I think he gets a heaven. year. I think the text yeah. actually says that, right? So yeah, we know it says as for the rest of the beasts, they had their lives prolonged for a season and a time. Yeah. And yeah. Isaiah 24 says that the kings of the kings on high are going to be put into the abyss for many days. We know that's a thousand years from Revelation. Yep. And yep. then, you know, I would have liked, eight, I would have preferred like a time or something related to Moad or something like that. Well, it is. It's, but it's in Greek know, and not Hebrew. So you have to, it's probably a continent oh, well, in, version. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So, and I, I only leave it open to three and a half years based on that one other passage in Revelation 6 about that short season. But I will not go beyond <laughs> that because that just that doesn't really add up. And if you look at that word that is used all the way throughout Revelation 20, it's like bang, and as in kahi. It's used that way all the way through the book of Revelation. It's almost like then at that time when it's like the when. So there's no real time for this really elaborate deception of wiping all information out for, in a lot of conversations, it, it, it's, I wish it was consistent, but it's not. It's anywhere from, well, maybe a generation to a thousand years. So I'm going, that's a, that's no, you can't find that there. You can't, I don't think you can stretch it that far. A short season is a very short season. And I agree with Doug. I, I think it's a year or, or less. It just can't be much time. It could even be from, say, Passover until Trumpets or Yom Kippurim, in other words. Yeah, season of the feast, which, yeah, mm. which that's the problem with the New Testament. It's in Greek, and you don't get those words, like with the mighty men of the end time. There's a connection there with the Gibor or Raphaim, the princes, but you have to use Greek words, right? Yeah. Mm. Same thing with Paul in First mm. Thessalonians chapter 4. Five when he says, yep. I don't even need to teach you about the times and the seasons. I believe he's saying, I don't even need to teach you about the appointed times, the Moedim. Yep. I've already taught you about those things. You now understand that these Moedim are, are prophecy that has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. That, that's the way, at least that's the way I interpret that word seasons. <laughs> so. Hey, we've got some more questions. Uh, this is from John Padilla. Does Islam, the Quran, have any Nephilim-related narrative like other cultures or religions? Yeah, not really. There's a couple passages that might get a little bit close as they connect into some of the gods and the demigods of, I think, the Mer, Mer, Meruts, I think they're called in, in the Quran. Um, but it doesn't really focus on, on that aspect of it. Uh, the Quran is... Um, it's got a little bit of prophecy in it as well, but not a whole bunch. It's just more about teachings than, than, than anything else. But it does have some, some witnessing in there of, of the Bible. Um, and actually, when I look at it, if I, and I know people will disagree with me on this, but if I was a Muslim and I read the Quran and I didn't listen to the imams and I didn't li listen to the hadiths, I would read the Bible and become a Christian like it tells me to. And and people yeah. have done that actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, yeah. it's it's interesting that that we're talking about Islam. I just spent I was having to drive the other day, and I listened to an expert on Islam for for two hours, and he was talking about some of the Islamic apologists that try to use stories. A lot of the historical accounts that are in the Quran are actually from Jewish sources, not biblical, but Jewish sources or Christian sources in the second and third and fourth and fifth centuries that they're trying to say. 
see how this is the word of God. And all Muhammad was doing was plagiarizing, essentially, yeah. as far as that part of it. Yeah. He got mad when people didn't convert. That's <laughs> like I mean, Luther did against the Jews. I don't know what the true nature of the Quran is, but all I ask people to do is, and I don't promote Islam in any way or the Quran in any way. All I would say to Christians is just don't pull off the internet what somebody says it says. Get the book, get the passages, and don't take it out of context. No kidding. Do a little research and don't yeah. just listen to a 20-second soundbite. Yep. Um, uh, this is from Jeff Brennan. He asks, Gary, what would you say to a Freemason to help them start to come away from their affiliation, a Master Mason and under 32? Okay, well, there's a, a few terms in there. So a Master Mason would not be under 32 degree unless he's a bloodline initiated from childhood. So you've got two systems in, and, and it goes to how you might approach them. <laughs> there's two systems. The, the, the old system is the York Rite, and it starts at third degree. And I don't know how many degrees it goes up after that. Then you have the Johnny-come-lately Scottish Rite, which takes those three degrees, divides it up 11 ways for 33 degrees. First level adept is third degree. First level in the Scottish is 33rd degree. Now, if you're a bloodline, you can't take adepthood until you are at, uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 from, from what I'm told. So you would call yourself a 32nd degree adept and uh, had that verified uh, after a show with the, the 32nd degree young adept that was really quite offended by all the things I was putting out there. But that's a different rabbit hole. So how would I go about talking with them? They have, depending, if, if they're not at a depth level, I would have them understand that everything that you're learning below a depth level is a lie. They consider you mundane and you're not worthy to know their greater mysteries. And so it's preparation and brainwashing as you're moving up. And then you're as you get to a depth level, you better be prepared to... Uh, say yes or no to an oath of loyalty to Satan or Lucifer is, or the great architect or whatever they're going to use for an allegory for the name when they learn about who their God is and claim him to be the equal of God. And if you're not prepared for any of that, you should get out because you're going to have a day of decision that you're going to have to make. If you're dealing with an adept, you might find it that they are less aggressive and they do tend to appreciate more that if you have some knowledge and information and you're firm in your beliefs, they respect that versus if you don't, they even consider you even more mundane. Their issue gets to be, though, is how do you convince them that they're going to be permitted to leave and that they won't be persecuted after that and that it will actually save them and that's where you really it it would take a, a fair bit of time because they will be persecuted uh, by their family by um, people within the craft especially if they've got higher level of knowledge and they don't want them out there and you may have to go into hiding but you can renounce that oath you will be accountable for that oath but i think you can still renounce that oath but you're going to really have to be faithful going forward and not be lured back into that. And that if you can make a, an argument to them that Satan is not the equivalent 
of the God Most High and explain why that is and why he's counterfeiting everything, you might be able to get them consider it. But once they're in a depth, it's very hard for them to back away from that. So the time to get to them is before they become an adept. So it's that yeah. be like like fully initiated in when the, when the seeker, like you just said, the that they're really worshiping this Enlil, they're worshiping a false god. Is that yeah? When... So yeah, so Ma Freemasonry is a classic for their allegory of Osiris and Isis within parts of their lodges or different gods from different pantheons, and that's always understood as an allegory, like the other offspring gods for Satan, which is they're all talking about being a sun god, but there's higher levels, right? And they also recognize the parent gods as you move up. They also have the queen of heaven as you get really up into the degrees and the sharing of that power. And in their belief system, that queen of heaven would be the counterpart of Satan. And that would be from their perspective, and you can make a good case biblically, that might be the case, is that was his consort that was killed as a Leviathan, just as uh, Satan is kind of a serpent-like Leviathan-type character, and there's going to be a Leviathan killed in the end time. So you can make some connections there, and the occult believes that Antichrist system is the Leviathan economic and world order system which is different than the babylon system and that's that hydra serpent that comes up out of the sea now i talked about a lot of polytheist beliefs but some of that you can start to look at how they would use that from the bible and also how that starts to fit in with how the spurious forces see the end time in a similar way but a different outcome wow there's a lot there <laughs> that's all yeah. i can say <laughs> Yeah, because what's interesting is that Hydra goes all the way back to Babel. Yeah. That, in fact, you find in the ancient iconography, you find it's actually Ninurta who is slaying the Hydra dragon, and he slays one of the heads yeah. as if it had been mortally wounded. But then he also is the Hydra. That's what yeah. the really weird thing is. Sometimes it's really difficult to study these things because you're like, it is. Which is what I don't yeah, and what's really interesting is in pretty much every polytheist religion around the world, you have in the polytheist system a offspring god versus mm. parent god that mm -hmm. is going to murder, or not murder, but kill the female Leviathan, whether or not it's mm. Tiamat, whether or not it's Lotan, Yam, and mm. there's a name throughout all of them, and Indra kills Virta in the Hindu versions. It's the mm. same story that's counterfeiting yep what happened in the bible and that's what they do yep. all the way through so one of the yep. key things with polytheists is focus on the counterfeiting why does yep. it always have to be counterfeited and why is there always dystopia war and destruction with everything you guys do <laughs> good question here's uh one we're really out of time so this is probably our last question could the nephilim be alive today it, it's it's possible. We don't get a lot of evidence for that. I do find the Afghanistan interview with that was on coast to coast with Steve was, I thought the details were extraordinary, both from the military side and from descriptions of, of Rafaim or Nephilim, and that there was in a mountain region. And so I found it riveting. Is that Steve if, Quayle you're talking about? Yes, yeah, Steve Quayle, yeah, okay. mm -hmm. on the coast to coast interview. And mm -hmm. So I, I guess it's possible, but really they couldn't be amongst us in an interactive way, maybe through portals or something like that from the underworld, perhaps, mm -hmm. or 
another way would be speculative if possibly through stasis that they were kept for that but typically except i would say no except for that one interview that i would leave open a small crack there i think if we're going to see the impression of nephilim and Raphaim in the end time i think from their descendants I would not be shocked if they recreated giants as we get closer to the last seven years. And again, they seem to grow up fairly quickly in some of the polytheist versions. That's a possibility from a speculative perspective. But somehow, some way, we're going to see them. But I would lean more from a biblical perspective that it would be more likely that we would see some of these demonic spirits released at the time of the abyss opening from the sides of the abyss versus the fallen angels. So I, I make a, a distinction there. And I know, Doug, you're a little bit different on that view. But I would say that they would be, from that perspective, have more of an ability to possess people or have an oiketarian a dwelling place where a spirit created for them to interact in the physical world in the end time where angels can take their own physical form whether or not that's more limited now than it was in the past, I would say there'd be more likely that would be the case than that we're going to see a creation of giants or giants that survived. I think there might be spurious offspring as well that aren't giants that may have been uh, in the occult system and world if there are portals. And, and I think there's a possibility that there is that they were able to go back and forth. So you got like the elementals and you've got a, fourth category not just the little people with the first three but there's a salamander one which is a reptilian being that's a little bit larger than humans that's also part of the alien mythos as well with the gray aliens that comes out of the gnomes of the ugly one of the three elementals kinds of elementals or fairies and there could be some other creatures that are in there in that visible hierarchy but what we see for the most part are the smaller version of these spirits offspring through the aliens and some other interesting little creatures in there and the descendants of the giant. Yeah, so I'm open to it, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and again, I think we might see things we could never imagine before happening as we get closer to the end times. So again, I don't like to be too dogmatic. I don't have enough scripture to make a, a good case one way or the other. So that's always, wow. here's what I think on that aspect. Very good. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gary. So everyone, you can go to Amazon and you can get Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. You can also get Part 1, of course. That is there on Amazon. Right now, Part 2 is available for pre-order. You can also go to Gary's website. Tell them your, the name of your website so they can find that. Genesis6conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 okay. six with the number 6conspiracy.com. And I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of book one and all chapters of book two, which has 84 chapters. And you can also pre-order a signed copy off the website as well, or order a signed copy of book one. Awesome. Well, Gary, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. This was stimulating to say the least. And I wish you the very best in all that you're doing. Everyone keep in mind, we're thinking about having a conference next summer. Oh, uh, this is something that we're working on, and it would be amazing to see Gary there. That'd be pretty cool. Derek Gilbert is already, he's already signed on. We're working on the details, but more information to come. We're really looking forward to it. And as always, stay in the word. Let's make sure we love each other, because that's what the bottom line is here. All this Nephilim stuff is fun, but 
What really matters is that we love God, we love our neighbor as ourselves. Till next time, God bless you.